Colossians chapter 3 is where we will begin this evening. Colossians chapter 3. Think of the person in your life who to whom you are the closest. Whether that be a parent, your spouse, a brother or sister, whoever that is, how how good of a relationship would you have with that person if they never let you forget what you had done to them in one way or another that you had wronged them? Suppose you called them uh, monster face or some rude uh, rude thing, and every time that you tried to compliment from them, compliment them from then on, they always would bring that up. Oh, really? Do you really mean that? Because I, I seem to remember that you called me monster face those eight years ago. And you're, you're thinking, come on now. It's over. I've already apologized for my foolishness and can't we move on? Well, that's kind of a silly example, but but we recognize that that could happen to, happen to any one of us. And we know from experience that it's difficult to maintain a, a relationship with somebody when they are unwilling to forgive or when we are unwilling to forgive. And, uh, in fact, that is not what love is. 1 Corinthians 13.5 says that love take, keeps no records of wrongs suffered. That is, okay, that, that thing that they did all those years ago, that thing that they did last week, that thing that they did this morning, should not be something that we put on our our uh, our, uh, our our notes, and, you know, our mental notes, and we always bring it back up whenever the person acts in any way adversely towards us. We should take we should not take into account a wrong suffered. And as a church, it is vital to the health and growth of this local body, and everyone for that matter, that we are people who forgive. Because a church that fails to forgive one another is a church that doesn't know God's forgiveness. A church that fails to forgive one another doesn't know God's forgiveness. And that means as individuals we have to be guarding ourselves against this bitterness that can take hold of us when we fail to forgive people who are just as worthless, really, as we are in the sight of God. Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Believers in the body of Christ must forgive one another. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you are a member of this church, then you have been chosen by God to love the people in this body, to love the members of this church. Look at verse 14. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It seems like Paul is saying that in order to attain this unity, in order to reach this unity that binds us all together, 
then we must love. And, and part of loving, okay, this is really an extension of what we talked about last week, which was learning to love. Part of loving is forgiving. We need to be willing to forgive other people. And, and notice the motivation, verse 12, because we have been chosen by God. Verse 13 at the end, just as the Lord forgave you. We have no excuse not to forgive because of what God has done for us. And what we find is that the progress of the church towards its goal malfunctions when we don't forgive. When we harbor within our hearts some ill will towards someone because of something they have done to us that was not right. They were not in the right for doing that to us or thinking that way about us or saying something about us. And this passage teaches us, verses 12 through 14, that disunity really comes, that strife comes as a result of our failure to forgive. Remember, we're supposed to be working all towards one goal. And what is that goal? I mean, our greatest goal in life for all people, we are made to glorify God. But how does the church glorify God? The church glorifies God as it grows together towards godliness as we mutually edify one another for the purpose of growing in Christ and and growing in Christ's likeness. And that only happens when there's genuine fellowship with one another in a spirit of love which is marked by forgiveness. Forgiveness really is a selfless act. It's not thinking of ourselves and the wrongs that we have suffered. It's thinking of the other person and what is best for their own well-being. It's recognizing ourselves before God. Romans 1 talks about the ungratefulness of those who don't know God. And, um, and, and we need to be willing to, to reach out to that sinning brother, the person who has sinned against us. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. begin reading in verse 5. See an example of what it looks like for us to forgive, to overlook someone else's sin. Verse 5, But if any has caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree, in order to not, not to say much, to all of you. Sufficient for such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. For to this end also I wrote, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things. But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken to us are taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Okay, what I was saying earlier is that disunity grows out of a heart of of uh, unforgiveness, if that's the word. See, you see that in verse eleven, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan. That is, if we fail to forgive, then Satan has an advantage. And we don't want to give him an advantage. We know his schemes. We know that he's trying to...
cause division within our body, within all bodies of Christ that are following after God. What what is happening here in this passage is that the, the church at Corinth has already practiced church discipline. That is, they've already addressed this man's problem. They've already said that, that listen, if you can't repent of your sin, then you can't you can't uh, you can't serve with us. You can't minister with us. You can't worship with us. But now, apparently, what's happened is that he, this man has finally repented, and that's why Paul says, "Listen, you've already inflicted punishment on him." Verse six. Okay, that's talking about church discipline. Okay, now what you need to do is restore that heart of love towards him and show him that, that you really do love him. Don't don't keep a, a hold a, a grudge against him, against him or have a cold shoulder against him, but restore him. And the reason is so that Satan cannot have an advantage in the church. And what we know from the Scriptures, and certainly you probably know from experience, um, maybe in, in other churches you've been in, maybe in this church itself, that, that if we fail to forgive, then we can guarantee that there will be strife within the church. I don't know if you've ever been in, in a church like that, but, but some people can't let go of a statement that was made 20 years ago or a decision that was made that was against what they wanted to do. And as a result, there is a result of this failure to forgive. There swells up within these people for a bitterness and a frustration, a hatred, even towards other people. And it can be hidden for a while. You know, we we can put on our plastic smiles when we come to church and act like everything's okay. But then, what happens over time is when pressure comes, when when difficulties come, then that's starts to, to rise out. It starts to bubble over and as, as a result, the strife is, is seen for what it is. And when it rears its ugly head, it is not a pretty thing. And it wasn't that all of a sudden this strife just popped up out of nowhere. It had been brewing for years within the hearts of people who have failed to forgive each other. So as believers, we must be marked by mutual love. We must never put our fellowship in front of the main goal. Sometimes what we can do is we can say, you know what, in order to pursue Christ, we need to make sure that we have fellowship. So what we do is we have a lot of fellowship, but then what happens is fellowship becomes the final goal. And we can never replace love for Christ with love for brothers. Now, it seems like a subtle thing because that's one of the ways that we show love for Christ. So how does that actually happened. J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness writes, He that wants relief must come to Christ Himself. He must not be content with coming to His church and to His ordinances or to the assemblies of His people for prayer and praise. He must, stop, he must not stop short even at His holy table or rest satisfied with privately opening His heart to His ordained ministers. Oh no, He must go higher, further, much further than this. We must have personal dealings with Christ Himself. All else in religion is worthless without Him. The king's palace, the attendant servants, the richly furnished banqueting house, the very banquet itself, all are nothing unless we speak with the king. His hand alone can take the burden off our backs and make us feel free. We must deal directly with Christ. 
what Ryle is guarding against is the mentality that if we've come to church, we've done enough. Okay? And, and that is part of worshiping God. We need to be a part of a church. We need to be participating in a church, but that's not enough. We have to go further, or as he says, higher, all the way to the throne of God and, and recognize that fellowship with believers is a means to an end. It's ultimately to, to restore or to increase our fellowship with God. So we need to be willing to love each other, and that means overlooking their sin at times. Now, what we need to understand now is from Matthew chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, is that there is a difference between forgiving sin, which is what I think the scriptures call for, and ignoring sin. Okay, there's a difference between forgiving sin and ignoring sin. Paul was not calling the Corinthians to ignore sin. In fact, he commended them for addressing the issue. That was good that you that you showed him the punishment that he needed at that time. But now it's time to forget about that. Okay? So there's a difference between ignoring and forgiving. And here we see in Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 that Jesus says that we really do need to address uh sins that have been committed against God. Notice verse 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again I say to you that if two, or, uh, two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered in my name, I am there in their midst. So what Jesus is calling for is not that we just ignore people's sin. Okay? And particularly here, this is some sort of heinous sin or unrepentant sin. And this is the practice of church discipline that I spoke of earlier. This is the idea that if a person is sinning, okay, maybe they're self-deceived. Maybe they don't even know what they're doing against God. Doesn't that show up in our own lives? And we need someone to come up and take us aside and say, listen, this is what I see based on what the Scriptures say. You shouldn't be living like this. Now, if they repent, you've won. Okay, You've restored them to fellowship. They've, they've turned from their sin. They've made their relationship right with God. And that's the idea of, of what the church is supposed to be here for. But if they don't repent, then the Scripture tells us in verse, uh, verse 16, but if they do not listen, take, two, two, um, take one or two more with you. So now you have two or three going to a person about the same sin that they've rejected repentance, and now they see a greater weight that this is serious. Okay, now he's bringing more than just himself, and so perhaps they are willing to repent at that time. And if they don't, then you take it before the church. And if the, if if, uh, if if the person still does not repent, at that point you need to remove them from your midst. You need to not have fellowship with them. Jesus says, treat them like a Gentile. In other words, a pagan same word that's used for a pagan or a tax collector, an unbeliever. Treat him like an unbeliever. 
because a person who is unwilling to repent of their sin shows that that uh, they they probably aren't very concerned about God and His leading, and that sort of person is not going to be helpful for the growth of the body, which is ultimately what we're working towards. So he, he's not calling for when he is calling for forgiveness of sin, he's not calling for ignoring sin. There's a difference. But he is calling for forgiveness, and that's what we see in chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. Here, Peter asks a question about forgiveness following Jesus' command to deal with the sinning brother. So Peter sees this problem. He says, yes, I I see what you're saying, Jesus. And, And if he responds, then we restore him, we forgive him. But, he says in verse 21, notice, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? up to seven times. Peter's figuring that's a pretty good number because in those days, I think the Jews would forgive three or four times and then that was it. So he was saying, listen, seven times? That's a lot. Wouldn't that be good if I forgave seven times? And Jesus is saying, no. Look at verse 22. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Jesus responds by explaining that true forgiveness doesn't count the offenses. He's not saying 490 times. That's the limit. Once they get there, that's where you've you got to stop, Peter, because at that point, you just stop forgiving. His point is, is, is just don't, don't count them. It's not about counting their offenses. It's about continually, genuinely forgiving. And so then Jesus helps Peter and the disciples to understand, and us, I think, to understand what he's talking about. He paints them a picture in verses 23 and 24. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with the slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. The king wanted to make a census of the accounts that, that were outstanding and as he looked at the ledger, he realized that there was this man who owed him 10,000 talents. And so he said, you know what, I'll bring this man before him. I want to see where he's at on this. How could he possibly owe me this much? This man was probably who owed him the money was probably some sort of official of a large province in order to accumulate this much money and have this great of a debt. The amount, 10,000 talents, I think is pretty significant. The talent was not an ability like we think about it. Um, rather, it was it was an amount of money or a weight of measure. So you could have one talent of gold. And one talent of gold would be worth 6,000 denarii. 6,000 denarii. And denarius, if you remember from our study in Mark, is worth one day's wage. So this man owed 6,000 denarii times 10,000. 6,000 denarii is one talent. He owed 10,000 talents. So in all, he owed 60 million denarii. 60 million days' wages. Okay, How long would it take for him to repay a debt that was 60 million days' wages? The point that Jesus is making here in this parable is he's using a number that is really the highest number that they would have imagined. 10,000 talents. And his point is that this was an innumerable debt. 
I mean, in our day, we could say something like $10 billion. A, a, a peasant or a regular person in, in our country owed the, the, the president $10 billion. How long would it take him to repay that debt? And so here's the problem in verse 25. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had in repayment to be made. The servant was in quite a predicament. He, what, what could he possibly do? What could he possibly do? Even if his family were sold, the top price for a, a slave at that time was about uh, one talent. Um, I'm sorry, yeah, one talent was the top price. That would be if they were a young person and would be willing to work for a long time. That's one talent. Remember, he owed 10,000 talents. Um, the average price for a slave was about one-tenth of a talent. So what that means is if he had a family of ten and they were all sold, how much would the king get back? He'd get one talent out of the 10,000 that were owed him. This man could never repay this debt. And so what does he do? Verse 26 and 27, he begs for mercy. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. It's interesting that the servant doesn't beg for mercy. I, I, that's actually what I just said. But he doesn't beg for mercy, does he? He actually begs for more time. If you just give me a little bit more time, then I'll pay it off. Isn't that what he says in verse 26? Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Is that a possibility? Is there a possibility that this man could ever accumulate enough wealth to repay this debt that he owes? Not at all. There's not a chance. And yet the master has forgiveness, uh, has uh, mercy upon him, and shows him forgiveness. And instead of giving him what he wants, which is more time, he shows him mercy and just wipes the whole debt. Now, would the king have been just in carrying out his original decision? Would he have been just to say, you know what? You have extorted all this money from me. You have taken all this money from me and you haven't paid it back and you have you don't have the means to pay. I have every right just to send you over to uh, to sell you into slavery. He would have been right to do that. He would have been just. So we would expect that the servant here would be faithful, or that he would be grateful at least. But notice what he does in verse 28. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. You would think that he would be grateful, but instead he goes and finds one of his own fellow servants and really gets to the point where he grabs his neck and says, Give me back my money. Do you notice how much money he was owed? How much was it? A hundred denarii. How many denarii did he owe the king before his debt was clean? Sixty million. The king didn't choke him. The king wasn't uh, being ruthless with him. In fact, he was merciful. And, and yet this man didn't show mercy to his own fellow servant. So the king finds out about it in verse 28. But that slave went out. Uh, we read verse 28. Let me read verse 29. 
So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me and I'll repay you. Okay, this is exactly what had happened before. The young man, uh, or, or the, the, the original servant who owed the $60 million, he gets down and begs, Please, give me time and I can pay it. Now, could this guy have repaid 100 denarii if he had some time? Probably could have. 100 denarii is not. It's 100 days wages. So he, if he would have had more time, then he could have done it. But... But this guy is so ruthless that he wants his hundred denarii back, and so he 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 rejects his offer. He, he rejects his um, his request, I should say. And uh, the forgiven servant refuses to grant mercy. We see this in verse 30. But he was unwilling, and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. And so when his fellow slaves uh, when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. The servant who had been forgiven such an innumerable debt was unwilling to forgive this minor infraction against him. And the king finds out about it because his fellow servants notice what takes place. And here's the king's response, which is what we're driving towards. Verses 32 through 34. Then summoning him, his lord, that is the king, said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. So what we have here is that a servant owes an infinite debt. He cannot repay the king. The king forgives it. But when when he shows, when this servant goes out and shows that he is unforgiving, what does the master call him? Verse 32. He calls him wicked. You wicked slave. And as a result, the forgiveness of his debt, the original debt, is not realized. The king doesn't now just simply sell him um, into slavery, but rather he gives him over to be tortured until he can pay it back. Notice verse 35. This is how Jesus ties us into what Peter was asking. Peter asked, how many times should I forgive? Jesus says, innumerable times. And here's why. Verse 35. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. The, forgot, the Father forgives so graciously, yet punishes without mercy. There's no inconsistency with that. As I said before, He would have been completely just to, to not show Him forgiveness. The king, doesn't, uh, the king is doing nothing wrong here, and obviously the king, you understand, is being portrayed as God. And, and what we ought to learn from this parable is that we do not want to be on the wrong side of God's forgiveness. We do not want to miss out on His forgiveness. The debt, I think you understand, that, that has been talked about in this parable is sin. Sin committed against an infinite God. And the servant is, I think, a professing believer. It's not a person who was saved, that he was originally forgiven and then God took his forgiveness away. Okay, We can't force the parable to mean what Jesus would not mean. 
And we know from other parts of Scripture that, that a person cannot be lost once they are saved. John chapter 10 says that my sheep hear my voice and they know, they know me and I give unto them eternal life and they will never perish, neither will any man pluck them out of my hand. For my Father which gave them to me is greater than all and no one is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. God will not release us when He has saved us and that's not what Jesus is saying here. Notice that this is, this is indicative of what this servant was really like. Look at verse 26. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He asks for more time. He's trying to do what? He's trying to earn the Master's forgiveness. Okay, I have this great debt against you, God. Okay, We're, we're translating it now into our life. I have this great debt against you, but just give me more time and I'll work my way up so that you can so that I can earn your favor. This is what this man is trying to do. Notice his response in verse 30. But he was unwilling that is to forgive this other man and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. See, he was unwilling to forgive and then notice the king's response again in verse 33. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you. Those who grasp the greatness and the enormity of God's forgiveness recognize that, that, that others, other people's sin is, is very minor in comparison to what we have done against God. And notice the punishment of the king. Verse 34, And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over toward the to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed. Could this man repay 60 million denarii? So how long was he going to be tortured? He's going to be tortured to death. And that is an indication that, that this is final judgment that's coming upon him. That Jesus is saying this person was never a believer. He's saying that he never got it. He never appropriated the forgiveness that was offered to him. If he would have, it would have shown forth in his willingness to forgive this minor infraction of his brother. And the fact that he didn't shows that he didn't understand God's forgiveness. That's the point. So our motivation in, in forgiving other people of these things that have been done against us, these legitimate wrongs that we have suffered. Our motivation is the fact that God has forgiven us. When God forgives a believer, then the believer responds with forgiveness. So we could we could say it like this. Why? Okay, we'll go back to Peter's question. How many times should I forgive? And really, inside of that question, he's saying, why should I forgive that many times, Jesus? Why should I forgive a debt of an innumerable amount. God is saying, because I have forgiven you a debt of an innumerable amount. That's why. When we recognize that, the, these other things that are done against us, oh yeah, they hurt. They, they, cause, uh, they cause frustration in us and they cause hurt within our hearts because we're people. 
but it means nothing in comparison to what God has done for us. And so we're quickly willing to forgive them. So we must genuinely forgive from the heart. That's what Jesus calls for in verse 35 after all. Notice the end of the verse. If each one of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. This is really stated negatively. This is what my heavenly Father will do from you, to you. That is, He will judge you if you don't forgive from your heart. So what's the implication? What's the positive statement that we could make out of it? My fa- heavenly Father will forgive you if you show that you have been forgiven, that you will forgive your brother from their heart. Now, this is not a works-based salvation. That If we forgive, then God can grant us forgiveness on top. The idea is that it is that the forgiveness of others grows out of the forgiveness that's already been given to us. And that's why I think Jesus uses this illustration in the, in, in the order that he does. He starts with the innumerable debt that we have been forgiven, and then he says, now look at your relationship with others. So we must genuinely forgive, and then we must liberally forgive. And I think we see that in the first couple of verses, verses 21 and 22. Peter asked for a limit. How many times? What is what is the end? When do I stop forgiving? And Jesus says, don't stop. Okay? Because you keep going and going and going because you have to recognize how great of a debt yours was to God. And, and all those sins that have been committed against you, you could pile them all up in a pile and they still wouldn't even come close to the the offense that you were against God. The amount of sin that you piled up against God and that you continually pile up and that needs forgiveness from Jesus Christ. And so we must genuinely forgive, that is from the heart, and we must liberally forgive. Don't stop forgiving. Now you might be thinking, that's good. That's Okay, I can understand how that could work for someone. But but you you don't realize how badly this person sinned against me. You don't realize how much I hurt because of what they have done and what they potentially continue to do to me. How can I forgive them? And I would say to you, then you don't realize what Christ has done for you you don't realize what you have done against Christ. You see, that's His problem here. He doesn't recognize the forgiveness that He has been granted. That He was, like us in Ephesians chapter 2, enemies. He, He was an enemy of God. And then He needed God to come in and do a supernatural work, something that 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 person and us cannot do on our own. When we recognize that, then, then we, we start to see these infractions against us as not so major. When we start to recognize that we were the ones that pinned Christ to the cross. It was our sin. It was my sin that put Him on the cross. We were just like the scoffers that called out from the crowd and mocked Him we were just like the, the soldiers who beat him and scourged him. We were just like the the uh, the governor who was willing to give him up, 
no matter what the right thing was. We're no different from him, from from these people. The second verse of a song called How Deep the Father's Love says this, Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And his dying breath brought me life. And I know that it is finished. We deserved in every way to receive the wrath of God for the death of Jesus Christ that we, that me, that I, that you were responsible for. We deserved God's wrath. And yet instead of God's wrath, He offered us and gave to us His mercy. What an amazing act of God to wipe out an infinite and innumerable debt from our account. And if that's taken place, then should we not be willing to pardon the minor infractions that other people have against us or that we have against other people? They seem so insignificant, don't they, in light of what Christ has done for us and what what God has wiped away from our account. Do you want to gather with a group of people who are growing in godliness, increasing in the knowledge of God, and accomplishing the the mission that Christ has given to us? Is that what you want to do? If so, then you and I must be people as a part of this church who are willing to forgive. We can't have good fellowship apart from forgiveness. It it can stay hidden for a while, but it will come out. And so we have to be willing to forgive. And maybe you're thinking, "Well, well, they've never come and asked me for forgiveness, so I don't have to forgive them. But the point is, is that you're right. In that sense, you don't have to go up to them and say, I forgive you for the sin you, you, you committed against me. You don't have to do that. But you do have to have a heart of forgiveness. And no matter how many times they sin against you, and even if they never come back and ask you, you have to be ready to forgive so that you can say, when they come to you and they ask, will, will you forgive me? You can say, I will forgive you because I've already forgiven you. That, that's behind me. You know why? Because I recognize myself before God and I recognize what a worthless creature I am. And if it were not for Christ, then I would be a worm and I would deserve His judgment. So I've already forgiven you. It's over. But if we fail to do that, what happens is it it begins to be stored up within ourselves and it harbors bitterness within us and we will not be ready to forgive. And those who are not ready to forgive, those who do not forgive, those who do not acknowledge their own sin have never experienced the forgiveness of God. So, have you seen the amazing grace of God in your life? You personally, have you seen what He has done for you? Then why... Are you holding a grudge? Why are you failing to forgive someone else who has done something against you? We need to acknowledge before God tonight the greatness of His grace and then be willing 
to forgive others who have sinned against us. Beg God for mercy. Beg God for the help to overcome this feeling of bitterness, this this temptation to hold on to the sin and, and not let it go. And if you do that, and if I do that, then, then you and I will help contribute to the spiritual well-being of this body. And as a result, we will be able to be more and more unified, as Paul said. It, it helps us to grow in unity towards that one goal that we're working towards, and that is to grow in Christ-likeness, to grow in the knowledge of God. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, the thought of our sin in many ways is horrific. But we recite with the songwriter that it is actually a blissful thought to think of our sin because it was taken not in part but the whole and it was nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. We don't have to carry the weight of our sin upon us because Jesus Christ already did. And if we recognize what you have done for us, then it will be easy to forgive other people. But when we focus on ourselves, when we focus on that sin, we are quick to to uh, harbor bitterness within us. And, and Lord, you know that that is not helpful to the growth of this body or to any body for that matter to any relationship and so we pray that you'd give us the supernatural strength really the, the spiritual strength that we need the stamina to be able to overcome by forgiving people who have sinned against us Lord you know that I'm not trying to minimize the sins that have been committed they're, they're may have been and probably are sins that I cannot even imagine committed against people in this room. And I perhaps have never experienced those types of sin against myself, and so I don't really know what they're going through, but you do. Jesus does. And certainly you do, because we've done so much more to you. And yet instead of your wrath, you poured out your love on us, your mercy and you forgave us our debt without even thinking and we're willing to to uh, move on and to remove our sins from your thoughts as far as the east is from the west. Lord, you are, as we read this morning, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth and we are amazed by that and we pray that you'd help us to be the same way. That we would be not so concerned about our own personal pursuits that are against your will, but that we would be most concerned about what you are doing in our lives and how you are sanctifying us and helping us to grow, causing us to grow, really. And we pray that you would give us strength in this area of forgiveness. That as a, a means of our love for you, as, a, as an expression of our love for you, that we would be willing to forgive those who have sinned against us. That may not be easy, but 
we can do it through the strength which you provide. And we pray that you would pour out your mercy upon us as we work to endure in the, in the Christian life, to have faith that your purposes and your plans, that your commands are best for us. Pray that you would help us to respond to the word that we have looked at this evening. May you plan it deep in our hearts and change us to be more like you. And the result, we pray, would be that our church would grow in unity and that we would increase in the ability to reflect your glory better. Help us now, we pray in Jesus' name.